Are you interested in joining a community of policy influencers working toward positive change? Consider Seton Hall University's results-driven executive graduate programs in international affairs. You can customize your studies through research in regional areas and specializations, including conflict management, global health security, and more. As a graduate candidate, you can leverage a collaborative and dynamic professional platform that includes one-on-one faculty mentorship, career workshops, international seminars, and discussions with global leaders on campus, at the UN headquarters in New York, and in Washington, D.C. The program is flexible. Study full-time or part-time, online or at the New Jersey campus just 14 miles from New York City. To learn more or sign up for a webinar, click the link in our episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion. And welcome to Unscripted. Today, youthful United Arab Emirates is the voice of a troubled region as the Security Council president in March, sitting in the council for the first time in 35 years. We talked to the country's ambassador, Lana Nuseba, and Middle East expert, Sanam Vakil. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. Dubai is the economic heart of the United Arab Emirates, or the UAE. The city is known for being a luxury shopping destination, a tech hub, and an architectural innovator. The Gulf monarchy is made up of seven emirates, and it's come a long way since the first time it had a seat on the Security Council, from 1986 to 87. It was a young country then, only about 15 years old. Now that it turned 50 last year, the country has matured, says Ambassador Nuseba. Growing up in a country like the United Arab Emirates and seeing the warp speed, if you like, of the progress that has been made for a relatively young country has really been such an exciting journey for all of us. I think growing up, one wouldn't have imagined then that the UAE, within the short span of time, would be taking up a seat at the Security Council, but prior to that, be leading uh, the region and globally on the clean energy revolution that needs to happen in order to address the critical issue of climate change. I think culturally, where we position ourselves and where we see ourselves, that's been a very exciting model to promote internationally. But also in terms of new technologies, AI, food security, water security, the Mars probe for a country like ours, we put a a probe into Mars and 60 years ago, we were borrowing the curriculum of other countries for our schools. And I think that just that data point gives you a sense of the leaps that we have made in a very short space of time. Middle East expert Sanam Vakil, deputy head of Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program, who's based in the UK, also thinks the country is completely different than the one that sat in the council some 30 years ago. This position, I think, reflects Emirati investment in multilateral institutions, and it reflects sort of new confidence in this approach since 
the very sort of turbulent period of the 80s, the UAE has changed. Um, it has grown, it has uh, diversified its economy, and it's diversified its foreign policy relationships. So um, it is coming back to the council as a very different UAE, a more confident country that has a vision, not just for its country and its citizens, but for the region and, and broader international dynamics. But while the UAE has matured, it is not a democracy. And advocacy groups constantly scrutinize the emirate for its human rights abuses, including for its role in the Saudi-led coalition waging a proxy war in Yemen. The UAE's population is also unique. 89% are migrants, and only 11% are Emirati. The inequality between the two populations is enormous. For the UAE, its role in the Security Council is to be the voice of the Middle East. That means it is the voice of many undemocratic, unstable, and war-torn countries. The region is tired of endless conflict. 60% of the region are under the age of 30, and so we just owe it to them. And I think our diplomats here feel that responsibility to resolve conflicts, not simply to manage them. And sometimes when we move into that conflict management paradigm that you see in some of the discussions here, because of the institutional nature of the approach to them, you think, well, hang on, this is our region. And actually, we'd like to see much more focus, much more renewed vigor and an energized commitment to solving conflicts, not simply managing them. So I really see that in our approach to regional files. The UAE's position on the council stood out in February when the UN's premier security body voted on a draft resolution denouncing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In 2014, when a similar vote took place after Russia's invasion of Crimea, all 10 elected members voted in favor. Then, as now, the vote was mostly symbolic because Russia vetoed on both occasions. But unlike in 2014, this time around, two elected members abstained, India and the UAE. So we asked Ambassador Nuseba why she abstained and if she thinks she'll be on the right side of history. Just a small question then. Look, I think we abstained alongside India and China and all three countries explained their positions in the explanation of vote. All of these discussions uh, were in many ways, foregone conclusions because of the setup and design of the UN Security Council. We were not here in 1945 when the operative environment was created that creates this, this setup and design of a permanent five membership who very much have an outsized say on everything and uh, the work of the council. For us, eventually it comes back to your foreign policy. And this really reflects the foreign policy that I've described. We're focused on keeping uh, in all situations, the window for dialogue and diplomacy open. Uh, and that always informs our voting. So in a time of conflict, the way we see the council, the way we see the work of the UN is that it has to reinforce our collective responsibility to identify the most likely routes, the most successful routes towards a peaceful and swift resolution of those crises. Uh, and so to leave no stone unturned towards achieving that end. And we're fully committed to those principles we're fully committed to the UN Charter uh, and to the importance of a stable regional and security environment, not only in our region, which I've mentioned as a complex one, but now in other contexts as well. So I think that will 
define uh, our presidency, especially if this issue continues to be one that the Security Council needs to discuss. Our voting will always reflect our foreign policy diplomacy, de-escalation, focusing on dialogue, focusing on cessation of hostilities. That's our foreign policy principle as well. Dr. Vakil was somewhat surprised by the voting results, even though she expected it. Everybody knew the resolution wouldn't pass. So why risk alienating Russia over it? I shouldn't have been surprised because actually the UAE has long been sort of walking a tightrope between the geopolitical sort of poles. It has strong economic ties with China. It has a security relationship with the United States, and it has a transactional energy and defense-based relationship with Russia. And so it was, I think, in that vote, trying to protect, again, very transactionally, all of those poles and preserve all of those poles. It's a reflection of the changing security landscape in the Middle East today, where there's deep uncertainty among Gulf Arab states about the U.S. retrenchment, what it means for their own security, and an awareness that China and Russia are important geopolitical actors. So this is a reflection of their hedging and of the growing sort of transactional nature of relationships and partnerships and alliances. After the vote, some diplomats said the UAE's decision was purely transactional. Its abstention secures Russia's continuing support for a key priority of the UAE, winning the war in Yemen. But Emirati Ambassador Nuseba denies such a quid pro quo. First of all, the UAE doesn't engage in vote exchanges. And, you know, frankly, if we were going to exchange in a vote exchange, people aren't asking whether we were exchanging votes with any of the other P5 who also voted in favor of this resolution. So the two things are really separate. I think the Yemen sanctions renewal regime was an important renewal and a, and a negotiation that came about because of the panel of experts report and the evidence of Houthi intransigence in the face of a, a, an arms embargo and the use of those arms to commit cross-border terrorist attacks against the UAE, against my country, against Abu Dhabi and the civilian airports and civilian infrastructure on January 17th. That was a defining moment for our country that had never witnessed the scale of an attack like that with ballistic and cruise missiles in our entire history. And although it had been happening repeatedly in Saudi Arabia, I think in the UAE, this was really a turning point moment for us uh, where we realized that what had been done, the failure of the UN to resolve the Yemen crisis has really gone on for a long time. And we need to, again, collectively move forward towards a diplomatic solution. So I think what was adopted in the Yemen sanctions regime, the arms embargo on the Houthis, there wasn't a single council member who disagreed with stopping missile components going to this Houthi entity who are using them for cross-border terrorist attacks. There isn't a single council member who opposes that. I think the designation of the Houthis on the sanctions list, and of course, when they start showing behavior that is conducive towards a political dialogue, they should, we should look at that down the road in the sanctions panel. But I think that was also really important, designating them and then describing them as an entity, which they are. I think that context is very separate and also very much in support of the political process of the UN envoy Hans Grinberg and the work that he now needs to do to resolve the situation in Yemen through a political process. Yemen is a top priority for the UAE in the Council. 
so it's likely to be back on its agenda in March while the UAE holds a presidency. The Council approved a February 28 resolution renewing the arms embargo against the Houthi rebels in Yemen and characterized the Houthis as a terrorist group. But some members who abstained said this characterization could worsen the humanitarian crisis in the country. I think that the UAE could very well use its position as chair to bring greater attention to the broader regional dynamics stemming from this conflict, particularly as the UAE has been targeted by missiles and drones coming from Ansar al-Law in Yemen. And the UAE has tried to lead an effort to re-sanction the Houthi group. And that has yet to be successful. So this position could be an opportunity to draw greater support and momentum behind that issue. I think, though, beyond solely sanctioning the Houthis, the position offers the UAE uh, perhaps an opportunity to bring together regional states and, and call for broader investment in regional security and bringing together regional actors involved in this conflict. The council is scheduled to hear consultations on Yemen in March. The topic could also come up during the recurring meeting on cooperation between the UN and the Arab League that's planned for late March. Another signature event of the UAE is on women, peace, and security. WPS is part of our commitment to bridging across regions and countries. We've joined together with the council members from different regions And just sort of not being in this bubble of only listening to your own vacuum, I think is really important to us. So with Albania, Brazil and Norway, we've pledged to hold a signature event on the WPS agenda and particular towards galvanizing a more comprehensive implementation of the WPS agenda with a briefer from the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva and others, civil society briefers, etc., Just as the UAE election in the Human Rights Council raised eyebrows, the country promoting women, peace and security will likely raise the eyebrows of human rights group and feminists because of the country's own issue with women's rights and domestic violence. But the country has come a long way and the situation for women has improved in recent years. But Vakil says the country still has some work to do. Of course, there's more work that can be done everywhere, including in the UAE, to bring more women into the public space, the public sphere, the private sector. And I think that there is significant government momentum to do that, to harness the economic promise of greater female involvement in the workplace. This is, of course, going to take time. And with that time, of course, the government has to respond to changing social and cultural demands that will be needed. And I think that there have been efforts to, of course, address issues of transportation, daycare, schooling, challenges that come alongside greater female employment capabilities that we will see. So there is an opportunity, though, for the UAE to draw attention to the progress that they are making, what has been accomplished, and to feature that sort of progress alongside their investment in uh, climate change and, and technological development, which is going hand in hand with female empowerment. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? 
Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Now, back to the show. Another dynamic that has undoubtedly changed in Emirati foreign policy since it was last on the council is its normalization of relations with Israel under the so-called Abraham Accords. Ambassador Nuseba says that the Accords play an integral role in the UAE's foreign policy and require a complicated balancing act. Look, I think the Abraham Accords in and of themselves are essentially an agreement between two countries that other countries have also become part of, uh, which essentially opened up a pathway to Israel's place in the region, uh, pathways for economic development, pathways for technological cooperation and innovation, and ultimately pathways for prosperity, not just for the youth of our country, but the youth of the entire region. And these are only going to be brought about by cooperation in these sectors. And so we really see the Abraham Accords as a pivotal moment for the region that we hope will really herald and has heralded uh, a new era of cooperation in a region that is turbulent. But they're ultimately the relationship that is between us and Israel. It has not affected relationships on the council. I think every country has the sovereign right to make their own decisions on the countries they have bilateral relationships with. And the UAE is one of those countries that have that relationship. And at the same time, like other council members, Egypt and Jordan, who represent the Arab group, but also have relationships with Israel, we also represent the Arab voice on the council. And of course, one of the primary issues for the Arab region is the fact that the Palestinian-Israeli issue remains unresolved. It's one of those situations where we're also looking towards longer-term resolution of conflicts and not simply conflict management. I think that falls into that bucket of issues. But going back to the Abraham Accords and the bilateral relationship, you know, of course it's had huge impact. 300,000 Israelis visited the UAE last year. They've resulted in already almost 130 MOUs on a variety of different issues, 222% increase in trade over a year, um, $1.46 billion in trade between Israel and the countries that just signed the accord, not just ours, but all the countries that signed the accords. So it's just the beginning. I think the Abraham Accords in a very difficult global economy and global environment, it's estimated that it could create about 4 million new jobs and a trillion dollars and economic activity. So it's a gateway to much needed economic opportunity for the region's youth. Uh, and I think that the US played a critical role, of course, in the lead up to the Abraham Accords and their continued commitment to the Accords is very much welcome, including as part of a wider regional integration. But of course, it in no way replaces the very necessary 
negotiations that need to happen between the two parties to the conflict, Palestine and Israel, and that is a separate matter and it's dealt with the council in a regular fashion. And of course, the UAE will represent the Arab point of view on that, which is the two-state solution as based on the international norms, laws, uh, resolutions, and we've stated that on the record several times. So I think actually, in many ways, the Abraham Accords is separate to the Middle East peace process, but it could be a useful stimulus, perhaps down the road towards seeing that wider integration into the region when the two-state solution is realized. Last September, Dr. Vakil wrote that the lack of focus on the Accords was a missed opportunity for the Biden administration. They were brokered by the Trump White House. But she says that since then, there's been greater emphasis on them, which she applauds. Well, when I wrote the piece, there was less public investment by the Biden administration in the Accords or in in celebrating the progress and the potential of the Accords. I think since then, there has been greater energy and attention put on the Accords. There's been perhaps more thinking that the Accords shouldn't be seen as a partisan issue, but rather an opportunity to bring greater recognition to the state of Israel, but also lead to sort of broader regional alignments uh, that, that could be beneficial for the United States. So that shift in thinking has led to more support to the Accords. What I would say, though, is that the relationship, particularly between the UAE and Israel, is not a new one. There were long sort of quiet collaborations, particularly on intelligence and security issues, going back two decades. Obviously, what has shifted is the very public sort of economic dynamics of the relationship, the travel, the greater people-to-people contact, which is hugely important. It's positive for a greater regional economic integration, and but of course, it has a security dynamics and implications that have yet to bear out or bear fruit. One foreign policy priority of the UAE is also containing Iran and its development of nuclear weapons. Here's Dr. Vakil on how the UAE approaches the Iran talks to restore the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the JCPOA. That's the nuclear deal that the Trump administration withdrew from. The return of the JCPOA, should it be resurrected, would be important for the UAE and for the Gulf states, not because they see Iran's nuclear program as a threat. They are more threatened by Iran's proliferation of lethal aid to states outside and non-state actors outside its borders, and they're much more threatened by Iran's sponsorship of groups in other countries. So they have been engaged in back-channel negotiations with the P5 plus one to be part of the conversation, knowing full well that if the deal does get off of the ground, they will need to have follow-on talks to address their own security concerns vis-a-vis Iran. So they're kind of in a bind in that without addressing broader security challenges, the security issues will not go away. But if the JCPOA isn't revived, it is expected that the regional security landscape will become more unstable. So this could be seen as a stepping stone to addressing broader issues. It's a bit of a delicate balancing act, but one that ultimately needs broader investment, not just from the P5 plus one, but specifically from regional states. And the UAE has developed 
its own particular relationship with Iran. In 2019, when we went through this summer of escalation, the UAE immediately pursued its own de-escalatory path with Iran. And, and that security dynamic, which we could describe as a give and a take, really defines transactional and pragmatic approach um, that both sides um, have towards each other. Here's Ambassador Nuseiba on how she plans to implement the country's policy on the JCPOA. The UAE was not a part of the first JCPOA as it was being negotiated. The UAE is not part of the second JCPOA or point two version as it's being negotiated. So I think for the UAE, again, I go back to our foreign policy interests. The UAE, I think Iran is, of course, a historic neighbor. There's huge cultural trade and people-to-people ties with Iran, uh, and Iran's integration also in a stable region is very important for the future prosperity of the region, and that is our, our baseline understanding for our regional environment. I think, you know, as we have always mentioned in uh, previous bilateral discussions with partners, for us, the issues that are dealt with in the JCPOA are important, and that's the development of Iran's nuclear weapons capability. And they're important not only for the region, but the international community in the same way that other nuclear weapons proliferation is an issue. But for our region, the other issues that are not addressed in the agreement remain unresolved, and those require further effort and further discussion and further diplomacy. And those are the ballistic missiles issues and development of ballistic missile capacity in the region, the use of them by militias across the region, And the fact of those militias existing to some degree supported by Iran, I think, remain key issues for us in the region. Uh, And I think those are conversations that we have with Iran bilaterally, and they're also conversations that we can have in a multilateral setting when the time is right. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is the foreign policy of the UAE is geared fundamentally towards de-escalation, diplomacy, and dialogue. And so any agreement, if it comes about, and when we see it and we haven't seen it, If it brings about more dividends, more peace dividends for the region, then we are, of course, going to hope to build on it. The UAE is a young country, and so is the ambassador at 43. She was appointed to the UN by her government in 2013 and is a graduate of Cambridge University. She's enjoying the dynamic among the four other women ambassadors currently in the council and dares to say there are strategic perks for capitals who appoint women ambassadors. I think the dynamic among the women ambassadors is strong. We've created our, uh, well, I don't know if I'd admit this to the other male colleagues, but we do have a women's PR group that we use sometimes to exchange information on the Security Council. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield has been great at bringing us together for brunches and meetings at her place on a Sunday, following a tradition of U.S. ambassadors convening the women ambassadors of the council. I think it was started under Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, showing countries that actually when you send a female ambassador to the U.N., they get the special attention of the United States is always a good signal for the WPS agenda. So I'd say that has definitely continued under Linda. But I think more broadly, you know, even coming onto the Security Council in our preparation, we worked with Malta and with Switzerland and with Albania when uh, Albania's PR was here and running the campaign for Albania to just coordinate cross-regionally on preparation for the council. So we'd share information, expertise, approaches, strategy. And I think that really helped us all 
piggyback on each other, if you like, uh, in our preparation. And that's the kind of cooperation we also bring to the Security Council. Of course, that's not to the exclusion of men who are equally important partners on our horseshoe table. But I think it is nice to showcase that having more female ambassadors at the Security Council simply makes that horseshoe table reflect the world in all its diversity as it should look, uh, as opposed to pictures of the 1950s of cigar fields, smoky lounges where men decided the fate of the future of countries and empires. So I think we've moved a long way from there, but there's still a way to go. And I know all my female colleagues are committed to seeing that change. That's it for our show. On a personal note, this was my last episode of Unscripted. I want to thank all the diplomats and experts who agreed to give some of their precious time to help us make sense of the complicated world of the United Nations. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for sticking with us over time. If you want to keep following my work or be in touch, follow me on Twitter at philionsteph10. That's F-I-L-L-I-O-N-S-T-E-P-H-10. My email address is there as well. Thank you, Stephanie, for helping to make the United Nations Security Council more transparent. This show would not exist without you, and I and our listeners will miss you. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leinbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted, and Pass Blue is covering the important news from women's rights to human rights to peacekeeping. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to PassBlue.com. PassBlue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit PassBlue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends. 